Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. Bud, we had so many listener questions and uh, elements of feedback that we just decided to go ahead and let this be its own standalone episode. So uh, you, the listener, will get an extra episode this week. Certainly thank you for all the support you've given us. I don't know if this is like some kind of direct payback to you or anything else. Just know that uh, your listenership's appreciated. We try to provide as much content as we feel comfortable. We'll never just put something out to put it out, but uh, we thought this would be a standalone episode and you'll have this on your Wednesday. So uh, as always, we'll thank our friends at New Iberia, Louisiana, Louisiana Hot Sauce, title sponsor of the Nolcast, And uh, they are the people who allow us to do podcasts, whether they be the uh, two traditional ones we have planned or maybe an extra one like this one. Absolutely, man. Let's go ahead and get into tonight's show. Our first question comes from Chuck and Chuck says, uh, how much of what we saw on Saturday was impressive versus playing what should have been expected? Uh, meaning, if you could per- put a percentage on it, what percent of the play we saw should we be genuinely excited about? That is interesting. I, I would kind of probably float more kind of intangible and broader ideas out there about roster buy-in, the confidence that comes from a team that has a quarterback that they you know have somewhat amount of confidence in. That's, that's something that's hard to put any kind of numbers on, but uh, when people call quarterback the most important position in sports or team sports, they're not lying. I mean, it is bizarrely impactful as to how the rest of the, the team and certainly the offense plays. Uh, so if you want to take away things like that, I think you can. Uh, you can be excited about what you have on offense. And if you want to be a Debbie Downer, you can be maybe even more concerned about some of the some of the things that you didn't see from the defense, particularly the defensive line. So I think like how much of the success should have just been expected? Probably a decent bit. How much of the actual changes they made to the offense and the schematic stuff they were doing and the personnel changes they made, should you be excited about? I, I think that is a different question. And I, I think that you should be excited about a lot of it because the coaching staff showed that it was willing to try a lot of different things. They started the game with Tate and Tate was not ready to play. And so they went to an offense, which was very different than the one they were starting the game. And that was effective. Uh, but like, even if it wasn't effective, they were willing to try it. They were willing to, to do different things, and they, they didn't just stick Jordan Travis out there into the same offense that Tate was running. I mean, there are some similar elements, but ultimately it's, it's a different offense. And I'll say genuinely excited about maybe 30% of it, and 70% is it's an FCS team. Is that, is that too low? I'm getting a look here on, on, the, <laughs> no, I think uh, on, that's fair. on, on the video chat. I think that's more than fair. Absolutely. I think there's a, you know, and again, if you want to be excited that your team faced a 14 nothing, faced 21 to seven, again, we can always throw through the filter of who it was, but this is a team that it's, you know, I don't like calling kids mentally soft, but this is certainly a roster that doesn't respond well to adversity. We'll say that. And it's a roster that could have rolled over uh, and didn't. So, you know, there's some, some good things to be excited about and that you can take away. And I don't think it all has to just be put through the, the filter or, or seen through the prism that, hey, they were playing an FCS team. Let's see. Austin asked a good question here. I saw it this afternoon, and I, I look forward to discussing it tonight. Uh, Austin asked, can you both talk about the Tribe 17-18 exodus? With Norvell actually having time to evaluate his roster, do you expect a large transfer class along with the normal signing class size? How tricky will it be to convince said transfers to join if the record is as bad as we think it might be? So let's go ahead and talk about this. So guys from the 2017 class who are no, who are no longer here, uh, 2017 is a little bit far back to go, but at the same time, this is the, the the last full class that Jimbo signed. You know, obviously the 2018 class was like half him, half Willie. 
So Cam Akers was a huge hit, overcame pretty bad offensive line play for most of his career in order to have a really good career. Marvin Wilson, pretty huge hit. Even if he's not playing great right now, um, overall, like that's that's a home run. Kando is someone who I think we're still excited about, even this year because of the potential he has, but but he's not hit so far. LeBourne obviously got booted. Uh, Stanford Samuels never really fully developed here. DJ Matthews is now gone. Cyrus Fagan announced today uh, that, that he's not no longer on the roster. Uh, Hamsa, I think a pretty big hit, to be honest. Jalen Parks, uh, excuse me, J- Jalen uh, was uh, medically disqualified due to, I think, a shoulder and a leg injury, if I, if I recall. It's been like two, three years now. Jaquandre White was obviously uh, you know, transferred slash booted. Leonard Warner is still your starting linebacker. That's not an endorsement, uh, but it is like he's still your starter at this point. Bailey Hockman is the backup at NC State, so he's already off the roster. Tamari and Terry, pretty big hit. I'm going to say Corey Durden is a hit. James Blackman, probably a hit for a guy to start that many games. I think most coaches would tell you. Not a, not a home run, obviously. Trey McKitty, uh, probably a hit, but transferred again. Uh, Adonis Thomas, definitely a, a swing and a miss. Just the knock on him at Bama was he wasn't physical, and at FSU he was also not physical. Uh, Alexander Marshall, big time miss. Uh, Ontario Wilson, I would say a hit. Trey Lawson, big miss. Deontay Sheffield uh, was not a scholarship guy, but I guess now he is. Brady Scott, so far I would say a miss. I mean, he really hasn't developed anything. DeKalen Brooks, obviously a miss. At least he's still on the roster. Uh, and then 2018 uh, is your your transition class, a class that we very much worried, like, I don't know, man, this is going to be weird in in this early signing period era because you're not able to get out and establish these relationships in in just a short few weeks. And ultimately, uh, I think some of those fears, not just at FSU, but across the country have been realized. Uh, Although more so at FSU because you fired the coach after just two years and uh, like that's going to create roster turnover regardless of whether you're in an early signing period situation or not. Jaden Lars Woodby is still around. Uh, AJ Lighton is gone. Uh, who else is gone? Warren Thompson is still here, technically. Uh, Treshawn Harrison is is no longer here. Xavier Peters no longer here. Malcolm Lamar transferred. Isaiah Bolden transferred. Uh, Christian Meadows medically disqualified. Dennis Briggs opted out. I'm not really sure if he's going to come back. I guess we'll see. Anthony Grant has transferred. Christian Armstrong, I believe, is tra- yeah he's transferred. Uh, Demarcus Adams has transferred. Demarcus Chapman has transferred. Jalen Goss is still on the roster. Uh, Chaz Neal is still on the roster. Keyshawn, Keyshawn Hilton. So, really, a, a ton of turnover from from that first 2018 class. That, that that first class you had in the early signing period era, which is sort of your transition class. You know, kind of half Jimbo, half Willie. There, that's not even really answering the question. That's just me setting the table for the rest of the listeners out there who don't have this information in front of them. Yeah, and yet you kind of answered the question too, particularly with with what we just looked at at the 2018 class. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. What what I take away from it, Bud, is is you know, obviously you and I've worked together for a long time, and I I have the utmost uh, respect for your professional opinion. But like when you when you tell me things a couple of years ago about oh well, you know, traditionally or historically these classes don't do well, and and you're just talking about a changeover class, not necessarily you know, the new wrinkle that is the December signing period where internally as a, as a massive Florida state, you know, Homer and lunatic, I, I want to think, well, 
that may not be us or it may not apply. You know, maybe this coach has done a better job of evaluating. Maybe the relationships are going to be there. No, this is just going to be a massive challenge for anybody that runs into it. And, and Florida State's turnover may be slightly higher in the 2018 class than what we'll see across the board. But you see a lot of misses and you see a lot of transfers. And uh, I think that's probably going to be the case for most people in, under these circumstances. I completely agree with you. So uh, the second part of Austin's question, Ingram, is can you expect a large transfer class along with the normal signing class size? Uh, no, because your transfers are counted in as far as your initial counter. So you can't have a huge freshman class and a huge transfer class. How tricky will it be to convince said transfers to join if the record is as bad as we think it will be? Uh, extremely tricky. In fact, we saw this offseason, like impact transfers do not want to go somewhere where they think they're, they may not make a bowl game and they're certainly not going to contend for a conference title or, or play in any meaningful games or play alongside other good players. Uh, so like, they may be able to get some contributors via the transfer market. Maybe they'll get lucky and get somebody who's, who's pretty damn good. I kind of doubt they're going to get a ton of serious impact transfers next year, just given the, uh, you know, g- given what we've seen as far as the, the trend with transfers wanting, wanting to play for good teams. Like the transfer market is, I think, largely benefiting the best teams as far as FBS wise. Oh, it almost certainly is. What will be interesting, bud, is like the Demarcus Bowman type transfers. Now, I'm not obviously that kid's going where he's going, and uh, I'm not saying to look at him. Maybe we need to mentally pivot a little bit from the idea of the transfer portal being guys that are third, fifth year players in the in the programs, and open our mind up that there's going to be more and more of these kids that test the waters and then immediately leave. And maybe they're not, you know, maybe they're prism that they're viewing the program through is quite as limited as far as they're, Hey, I'm only going to be there one year. I want to go to a bowl game. I want to compete for a conference championship. They might be a little more open to things as we start to see the, the transfer portal, not just be kids that are in their, you know, kind of their final year of eligibility. Well, I think that's fair, but Ingram, especially in this year, I would say that's important because you're going to have a lot of kids signing nationally who did not go to schools and visit ever. Right. And so a lot of these kids are going to be from the state of Florida or the state of Georgia and they want to come back and play closer to home. We're already seeing this a little bit with some of those kids that Nebraska took from the state of Florida who, you know, ended up already transferring out. Now, a couple of them, I think, went to FAU, FIU because they're South Florida and those schools had a room. And I think there are some other issues going on with some of those dudes. Anyway, this staff's going to have to be good on the transfer market. They just can't take a billion transfers because they also have to build this thing up from the ground up, which also we got an interesting question on Twitter tonight. I don't know if you saw this. I, he actually tweeted at me and you, but not at the Nolcast account. It's from Larry. Uh, and Larry said, uh, there's a common measured demeanor from Norvell that seemingly wasn't there with Taggart. Is it because Norvell knows he has almost guaranteed time at FSU? I, I honestly, man, one of the criticisms we got about Taggart, but he was too calm and, and, and relaxed, right? Like he just seemed very mellow at times. And, like with Norvell, I, I see you laughing. All right. Uh, like, but yeah, I, I think Norvell is smart enough to realize that, that he has the leverage here in terms of the ability to make sure that he sees the end of this contract, I, I would think at least. Well, first, we should probably thank our sponsor, yeah. Shannon Young and Chad, 844-FSU-LOANS, 844-FSU-LOAN. More than 80 NOLCAST listeners have chosen these guys to do their loan. Why? Call them to find out. Great rates, customer service, little null chat. And guys, just it's it's personalized service. And they'll walk through the entire process. 
give you the expert advice you need, give them a shout, 844-FSU-LOAN. Ingram, let's go ahead and take this one here from uh, from Lee and Kessna, which is kind of like a combined question. Yeah, we kind of hybrided some of these. There's some similar thoughts and or trains of thoughts that are evident in this questions and some of the other ones that we'll try to merge if we see a repetitive theme. Uh, this one is, how sustainable is the play of Jordan Travis going forward? Loved what he did, but noticed the lack of zip and some questionable ball placement. Given that Notre Dame and Clemson are no JSU, if Travis plays well the rest of the way, uh, this season, does it mean that Florida State gets another one or two wins? I, I wouldn't limit it to just one or two because I think there is a chance this team improves as the season goes on, perhaps more than other teams improve because they are still learning learning what this staff wants to run. They're still learning to work together as a team. They have a little bit, I, I think, steeper steeper learning curve than some others do, but that, that, that also means they have a little bit more room for improvement, right? in season than maybe some other teams do. So I, I wouldn't limit it to just another one to two wins. And Clemson are, are not super winnable um, at, at this time. Uh, simply because like personnel wise, I, I don't I don't think you have it. And you are extremely one dimensional if you play Jordan Travis. Most notably here, as we spoke about on, on the last podcast, so on, on the Tuesday morning release, we've yet to see Travis be effective throwing the football when the opponent knows he has to throw, I strongly suspect that he will struggle mightily in that situation. I think that's one of the main reasons why he didn't get to play under the prior two staffs. It's great if you can stay ahead of the chains all the time, throw on play action, etc. The Boo Birds are going to be out when they when they call their fifth draw of the game or their fifth bubble screen on third and nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. But that's not all the teams they play. No, it's not. I mean, so you're you're not going to beat, in my opinion, you're not beating Clemson or Notre Dame, even if you got Jameis Winston behind quarter behind center. Uh, North Carolina is not quite to that extent, but I will group them in a game that you're probably going to lose. The rest of the games, you know, you've got a decent chance of winning if, if Travis or if you're getting a a level of play from quarterback that's just not a, a massive detriment and. You know, if you get a little bit of a broader collective team buy-in and, and effort from wide receivers and things like that, that tend to come along when you're having some modicum of success uh, with your quarterback. So you're not beating Clemson, you're not beating Notre Dame. In all likelihood, you're not beating North Carolina. Does it mean that you can't win four other games and, and maybe end up five and six or something like that? Uh, I think that's kind of the uh, high water mark if if you want to if you want to judge it that way after you lost your first two games and uh, Travis probably gives you the best opinion or the best option, at least right now to kind of, uh, you know, crawl and, and scrape your way to maybe that five win mark. I, I would agree with that. Uh, by the way, a couple things on what we were talking about there with Notre Dame, we're recording this bonus episode on Tuesday evening. And so we have, we really haven't seen anything updated as far as new Notre Dame COVID stuff. I don't anticipate the game being canceled at this point. So I guess we'll have to see what goes on with their testing, they may have their outbreak under control. They, they might not. Yeah, they were back at practice today. Uh, it sounds like they have the vast majority of their roster back with them. I think they lost uh, 15 to positive tests and another 14 to contact tracing, something like that, or 25 to positive tests and 14 to contract tracing. Uh, they actually blamed some of it on some of their celebrations after uh, beating USF, like on-field celebrations, which are – Funny to me, but it's uh, a team that appears to be back in play. Now, they're 
the president of the university has COVID. There's some other things going on there. You know, if, if things were to continue to spiral, then maybe the game would be brought back into question. But for now, uh, despite all of the uh, funny word games that I've tried to play so far, it appears as though Notre Dame is on the schedule and you will be playing them Saturday night. One concern I have about Notre Dame, and this is maybe a preview of the preview, Notre Dame is top 15 in the nation in terms of average third down distance faced on defense. They are uh, fifth in the country in stuff rate defensively, which means that they are forcing a lot of third and long situations. Again, that's kind of a death down for FSU, which rolls into our next question, actually. Matt asks, uh, for the offense, how does the performance against Jacksonville State lead you to believe about the game plan and potential success or failure against Notre Dame and the rest of the schedule? Given that Purdy is also a threat on the ground, do you think Travis is somehow uh, like a, a lab rat in the experiment to see if dual threat quarterback will make the offense more effective? If so, do we see Purdy early against Notre Dame if Travis struggles? Lastly, for the offense, how sustainable is the deep ball from Jordan Travis? He threw a couple of good balls, especially to Young, on, on the sideline while rolling to his left, and I wonder uh, if the talk about him having a noodle arm is overblown. So a lot of different questions here from Matt, and I, I think all of them are good ones, and honestly, they were echoed by some, some other readers and listeners that we have. I'll take the the first one, um, which we just discussed. I, I don't think a lot of what you did necessarily translates to, to Notre Dame. It's possible that it does, especially if the Irish don't take this game seriously. Uh, but I, my guess is that they'll take it pretty seriously because it's the first game they've played in about three weeks, given the fact they had to shut down for COVID. I think if you're FSU, you're trying to shorten the game here with all these run plays and and like not get blown out on national television. I don't ever, coaches will never tell you, Hey, like we're going into this game, not to try to win, but to not try to get blown out because that's, that's actually they're, they're related. Okay. Playing, playing a super slow tempo. If you can grinding the clock, reducing the, the number of possessions that actually does increase your chance to win in this game because you, you are the lesser talented team. Uh, if you have more talent, you probably want to have more possessions to try and grind out your edge. Just like, you know, playing blackjack. If you have the edge, if you, if you know the count and it's in your favor, you want to play as many hands into that shoe as you can. Let's take the second question here. Given that Purdy is also a threat on the ground, do you think Travis is a, somehow like, like a lab rat in the experiment to see if a dual threat QB will make the offense more effective? If so, do we see Purdy early against Notre Dame if Travis struggles? So the first one, no, I don't think he's a lab rat. I think he is a, a bridge or a band-aid to try to get this team through the next couple games until they are actually comfortable uh, playing Purdy. Because I don't think they're super ready for him to play right now. I mean, he missed a good amount of time. He's a true freshman who did not unroll early and did not get spring. Like That's a lot of time he has to make up. I, I don't know that it's going to be great if you just throw him in there right now. Do you think they'll see him against Notre Dame if, 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 Travis, if Travis struggles? I, don't, uh, I mean, it's possible. Uh, but I don't know if there's a whole lot that you get out of you know, if you're down 24 to nothing or something like that in the third quarter, let Purdy go out there, take some snaps uh, and get beat up. But, you know, it, it appears as though he is he's in the conversation for snaps. So however they dictate it, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. But I uh, let me put it this way. I think Travis might be more of a Band-Aid for the for the year, where if you see him for three or four games, uh, I think he might be something that if he's healthy, you can get through this year. doesn't mean that we're not going to see Purdy. But I don't think the staff is ready to just 
turn the turn the offense over to Purdy right now. Nor do I think that they're aggressively trying to get there. I, I think we're going to see them explore what this Jordan Travis situation looks like, see what they can do to establish some kind of offensive identity. Um, but I, I And I think that's the direction that they're moving in forward. I, I don't think it's necessarily that Purdy's our guy. We know Purdy's our guy, and we're just waiting for the right time to press the button, and then he's going to be it moving forward. I do kind of wonder if you don't play him at all, is that intentional with the idea of trying to keep the kid you have committed, the quarterback committed? I, you know, I, I think this is kind of a conversation that you and I have kind of kicked around loosely over the past four weeks or so. Luke Altemeyer is having a, a really good, I don't know if I want to say exceptional, but he's having a really good senior year. And it's, a, you know, showing a well-rounded ability that uh, is impressive and is only helping himself and has certainly, you know, caught the attention of some other people throughout the region. I think signing Luke Altmeyer is not necessarily he's going to be your starting quarterback for three or four years, but at this point for this staff, it's a PR black eye that they would desperately try to avoid. Not, not to mention the fact that he's exceptionally talented and a guy that you want to develop. If maybe letting this Jordan Travis experiment run its course gives you a little bit more likelihood to sign him. I, I think that has to go into the thought process, man. I, I think, again, you're not, you never jeopardize what you can get on the field on Saturday for the hopes of what a kid will give you if he signs with you. But getting Luke Altmeyer in the fold is a, is a big priority and not something that they're looking to have an SEC school come in the last moment and take a kid that they've kind of built the class around. I, I agree, man. And yet you have to balance that with the idea of, all right, we, we very much believe in Purdy as a coaching staff. And we want to get him some experience in games. We want to see what we have in him in games. We want to actually be able to sell him as a player to some of these other recruits who might want to join up, up with us. So like there's the, on the one side, there's the keep Altmeyer type thing and, and not have it be very obvious that like Purdy's your guy, if in fact he is. On the other hand, it's like, what are we going to sell to recruits? We're, we're not going to sell Jordan Travis to, to recruits to come play with. So you, you need to kind of, that, that's a tough balance that this staff has to strike. I, I think this question really gets at the heart of that. Matt, final question here. He says, for the offense, how sustainable is the deep ball from Jordan Travis? Uh, he threw a couple good balls, especially the ball to Young. Uh, and I wonder if him have to talk with him having a noodle arm is overblown. I don't know if it's, it's the noodle arm type thing. I think it's the ability to like read a defense, throw in rhythm, put, put arc on the ball, right? Like actually impact the throw with the right trajectory and the right RPMs that there were a couple that, you know, that were kind of, kind of a little saily. But when we talk deep ball, there's a difference between deep ball and like the ball that you throw over, throw over everybody's head. I think he can do the latter. We have not yet seen him do the former, which is, you know, throwing some of those more difficult throws. So like your, you know, your, your, your deep end cuts, your, your, your deep outs, some of your corner routes, things like that, that are, you, you really need to drive that ball. So, some, you know, your skinny post stuff, those type of things. Really haven't seen them throw any, throw many of those and hell, they may not call any of them, right? We, we just don't know. Matt, I don't have a great answer for this one. I, I wish I knew, but I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how sustainable it is because I haven't seen the, that deep ball. But as far as the throwing the ball, baller over everybody's heads off play action, I, I think that's fairly sustainable. 
We will uh, transition over to some defensive focus questions here, bud. The first one comes from MJ. MJ asks, is there any word on Hamza Nasruddin? There was an excitement when he was listed as a or on the death chart, but again, he was not dressed out. If this goes on much longer, do you think he will opt out for training on his own? Yeah, MJ, I, I think that's certainly a, you know, I, I certainly think that is something that's being considered. I would look for him to play against Notre Dame. And maybe if you don't see him against Notre Dame, I'm not sure you're going to see him. I'm just not sure where he is or what kind of he and his team think is worth going about. Maybe it's that he shuts it down uh, until the bye week and then comes back, tries to come back for, you know, Pittsburgh and the games after that to try to both, you know, have some tape to put together and and also just to show kind of where he is from his recovery. But uh, I do think that the, uh, you know, proverbial sands in the hourglass are, are running and, for every game that you don't get Nazaldine back, you probably need to tack 8 to 10% uh, on the likelihood that you're not going to see him play again. I would agree. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think that they have some sort of agreement with him? They're not going to play him until he's fully healthy so that like he doesn't put bad tape out there? Uh, I think there's a – I'm pretty confident in saying there's been some premature conversations had between all parties involved about when they bring him back or how they bring him back and – Maybe if you had won, even the or excuse me, even if the, if you had won the Georgia Tech game, there might be a little bit more of a sense of urgency with what you're trying to do with him. But at this point, season is the season, and I think everybody realized that you've uh, you've got to approach this one a little bit differently than you do some others. Makes sense to me. You know, one team that we've always been able to have mature conversations with is, is Matt and the good people at Madison Social, uh, fantastic supporters of the Nolcast, great supporters of Florida State Athletics. Whether it be to go and take advantage of the uh, open-air seating that you can get at Madison Social or Township or to go for the, the fantastic pretzel that we've raved about at Township or the BLT dip at MADSO, uh, fantastic options all around. Again, thank you to, uh, to the whole team at For the Table Restaurant Group. Uh, they've been with us since the first time we pressed record. They were instrumental in our ability to kind of transform into the NOLCast. So thank you to them. You can always go to their website, madisonsocial.com backslash NOLCast for a couple pieces of a no pass, no cast memorabilia, if you so choose. And uh, as always, we thank that team for all that they do and, and what they make possible. All right, dude. So Kesta asks, Hey, I'm gravely concerned with the play of our interior defensive line. They rarely got pushed against the FCS offensive line. I did see question Fuller get good push on a couple of plays. Is there anything Odell can do coaching wise to get better play uh, from this unit? Man, they have been inconsistent as hell, haven't they? Like like and 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 lacking impact in the game. It, do, it doesn't look like they're very strong. Uh, it doesn't look like some of these guys are in the best of shape. Like does Marvin Wilson look look like he has that twitch to you this year? It doesn't to me. He doesn't. Now now Durden, I can understand a little bit more. And Durden, some of the reason why I was optimistic on this that I thought they would continue to grow is because we know that you know Corey didn't get the best of uh, of off season situations, and also he's recovering an injury. So I thought that maybe after uh, the Georgia Tech game that you'd continue to see him come online and, and as a byproduct would uh, you would help the rest of the line and their respective level of play. But you just haven't seen it. And, man, I went back and I watched the first quarter intent with, with the sole focus of watching the defensive line and, and watching the front four. And it's disappointing. And, I, you know, I mean, Odell's had as much sustained success here as any position coach ever uh, and, and recent success. So I'm – I'm real hesitant to start putting blame on 
uh, Odell Hagan's feet. And the defensive ends, I think you've got two pieces that look great. Uh, and and certainly Kando played a little bit better and, and made a couple you know plays behind the line of scrimmage. But mm, I'm not going to say Tarzan Jane, and that's not fair. Uh, but you got two guys that you want walking off the front of the bus and two guys whose level of play on film doesn't translate to their appearance as they walk off the bus. How, what can Odell do? I, at times, I, I, I do at times think they're playing too many games up front. And that, that's not like, hey, we're playing games. Like, I, I think that they are in an attempt to get pass rush, almost over-stunting, over-twisting. And I, I, I think they just need to kind of let these guys go out there and try to win one-on-one a little more, which seems counterintuitive given what we just said. Yeah, in my opinion, the Georgia Tech game was way too full of games. They were trying to do way too much stuff compared to just just lining up and playing. So I I certainly agree with you there. Yeah, and maybe that'll get better as the season goes on. I'm not sure if we want to judge an FCS team, you know, based on that. So Thomas asks, uh, hey, I watched the condensed game on YouTube, mainly focusing on the defense. I paused the feed about one to two seconds after each snap. I'd say 90% of the plays are backers. Uh, we're still in the same spot. It's it's like they were sitting and waiting for something to happen. By the time they react, as something has already happened and they're out of position. Uh, I then watched other college and NFL games, and I could, I could say there was maybe a 10% of the time where the backers stayed, stayed neutral like ours do. The rest of the time, they were either getting into coverage, coming up on the run, or coming up on the run, uh, and then recovering because of play action. I was hoping you might go over the typical keys for backers and what they were supposed to be doing against the RPO game. Well, so there's a lot of complications here, um, and I'm, I hope I can explain this on a podcast. And if, if I can't, I apologize. There are some, some good resources you can look at, like you know, Smart Football or uh, uh, the, the Defense Football blog, if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty as far as like backer keys. A lot of it's going to depend on if you're playing you know, zone or, or man. It's a little bit easier to take away some of the RPO stuff in, in man, but do we really trust these backers? To play a man uh, in zone, sometimes you're 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 reading you know you're, you're you're reading through the triangle to the back. Other times you're, you're you're reading more of the offensive lineman and and trying to look at what you have coming you know, traffic wise laterally. It's tough to tell exactly what they're being asked to do because I don't know what the play calls are on defense. What I can tell you is that like this team does not like they do not seem like they get the defense yet fully. I thought they were actually just flat out kind of unprepared to execute the defense that they had put in against Miami. But they just don't look like they understand their base defense. And that that does surprise me. I, I thought that they would have been able to to install this a little bit better to this point. And that's not me saying that Fuller and those guys can't coach. I think there's a pretty good chance they probably can coach. And maybe they have some personnel limitations that are some of them are physical, but some of them might just be mental too, right? Like these guys needed to get some fundamentals down over the course of their career that given the linebacker coaching that we've seen in FSU for a while, they just didn't get. That's certainly possible. But like these guys don't look like they know what they're doing a lot of times. And they're not playing fast and aggressive. Even the dudes who we know are, are, are athletic in the open field are, are not triggering and and playing fast and aggressive. And that was something the last staff really struggled with too, was, was getting them to do this. I feel like we've had this conversation now for a while. And, and I really believe that was coaching by the last staff. And I think this staff thought it was too, and that they would be able to get better out of these guys. So far, they have been unable to get better. They clearly don't trust what, what is being asked of them. There's, there's some plays. I, I know Thomas's question concerned of the RPO. 
Like there's some plays where a guy who really does not have primary run responsibility is just peeking into the backfield way too much. And and the tight end runs right behind him or the slot runs right behind him when he should be, you know, sinking to depth while while still watching everything. They don't look like they trust what they're what's being asked of them right now. That's not saying what what's being asked of them is not the right thing. It's just they don't they've not like they haven't like internalized yet to where they can just see see it, apply that and and react to it. You know, it's like they're thinking out there, if they're thinking at all. Yeah, there's um, you know, there's a series of plays you can go back and look and, and be frustrated with some of the response from the linebackers. And really that that starts at Georgia Tech and, and runs through last Saturday. Um, I, it's rare that I make comments like this because it's not really fair. But, I mean, I did after a quarter of the UGA game, uh, UGA or Auburn on Saturday night, just Georgia's linebackers are not playing the same sport that Florida State's linebackers are. I mean, it just looks like a totally different unit that attacks and has a mentality that that really none of our players do. And, again, that's that's not really a fair comment to make about one team that you're just sitting there kind of casually watching uh, but they're, you know, like what blows me away, Emmett Rice, is Emmett Rice really somebody that you and I thought we'd have to sit here and wonder how quickly he's going to pull the pin or trigger or try to diagnose a play? Now, there's the physical limitations there, but I don't think we ever thought that we would be, you know, um, condemning how long it's taking him, not necessarily that he's diagnosing the right play, but at least making a diagnosis and responding to it. So when you see somebody like that play slow, that lets you know that you've got a kid that's not sure as to what he's doing or, or exactly what he's being asked of. Exactly. Like, naturally, he's he's pretty aggressive. Like Warner is not necessarily that guy, but Rice for sure has been that guy o- over his career. All right, Chris. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chris, I chuckle because no, I cannot explain the defensive struggles as he asked. I thought we had better talent than this. Why does the defensive line look so bad? Uh, we, you know, certainly some similar themes here in all of these questions, but it's just disappointing, Chris. I mean, some of it's injury, some of it's uh, COVID, in my opinion, from an inability to have a true off season, but so did everybody else. But there's no, I, I have no explanation. I mean, I, I kind of stuttered and stammered my way through part of the instant reaction on this. I just don't, I don't know. I, I, I even haven't gone back and, and looked at it. I just see guys that are not just, high school talented. I mean, not just, you know, had four or five stars by their names, but guys who have had documented bona fide production at the college level that are just getting beat one-on-one for whether it be first guys versus Georgia Tech that we don't think they should be, whether it's getting just slapped around by Miami, uh, whether it's being pushed off the ball, it's an FCS team. There's, there's no explanation that I can give to you when in a 1v1 situation, one of the better defensive tackles in the country in theory is getting blocked. It, it just doesn't make sense. And ultimately it's, you know, uh, a lack of effort. It would appear, it would appear as though some guys, and maybe it's not game day effort. Maybe it's not firing off the ball effort. Maybe it's that you didn't do what you're supposed to do in the weight room. So, you, you know, you don't have the ability to play at the level that you or are the collective fan base expects, but uh, there's, there's nothing but some kind of raw, uncomfortable questions or answers for the question as to, why the defensive line's playing at the level that they are. We will pause ever so briefly to thank our friends at Congruity. Matt Lewis and his team become part of the Nolcast, and we're all the better for it, as you would be to partner with Congruity. Congruity is experiencing your business optimized, meaningful, outsourced HR for companies just like yours. 
Congruity strives to create value for our customers by delivering a truly unique client-centric experience that helps them accomplish their desired goals, inspires performance, engages their employees on a more personal level, and fosters a positive culture. So work with the same team that we do. Matt Lewis can be reached at 844-247-4100 or Knowles at congruityhr.com. So Kevin has kind of an interesting one here. Hey, guys, I love the show. I thought you two would be just uh, just a game uh, out of what might happen in a different scenario. Time travel uh, back to the Alabama game in 2017. Francois goes down in the fourth. Instead of Blackman, Fisher puts in Bailey Hockman and goes with Hockman for the rest of the year. What is different today with the FSU program, knowing that we know about how each of the two quarterbacks progress? Are we better off, worse, or roughly the same? Nice, guys. I thought this might be an interesting what-if topic. So this, this is pretty cool. I would say FSU is worse off. Um, Billy Hockman couldn't start at Florida State for the most part and also has just got beaten out again at NC State and is, is pretty limited physically, right? We saw it before he transferred a little bit, obviously. Um, he's not actually all that different than the Wisconsin transfer that you had uh, that you had last year. I mean, kind of soft, soft arm lefties, except uh, Hornerbrook had, you know, had a bunch of wins under his belt and experience. So I would say they're, they're slightly worse off. Maybe not a ton. Um, Hockman does not really have very good sack avoidance. And uh, he did have a nice game against Wake Forest. Wake Forest might be really, really bad uh, this year. But other than that, I mean, he was very bad against VTech. And then uh, uh, obviously when Leary came in and looked good against VTech, they, they didn't really see the need to go back to, uh, to, to Bailey Hockman. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I I find a hard time locating any kind of significant divergent path based off the choice of Hawkman. Now, you know, maybe it forces Jimbo Fisher to be a little bit more hands-on with the offense and modify some things because of Hawkman's limitations. Now, obviously, Blackman is as well, but Blackman, from a standpoint as to, you know, where you can throw the ball and where you can put it on the field gives you, gives you a lot more options than Hawkman. So, you know, maybe Jimbo gets a little more hands-on and creative and, and tries to, you know, claw his way to points. But Jimbo was checked out, and Bailey Hockman, one going to change that. <laughs> it's not as though he was going to wake up to the idea he had some kind of transitional talent and, you know, engage again. Uh, so I don't know that all those two things are different. Maybe if you want to make the argument that maybe Blackman has a chance of being a better prospect because he doesn't get, you know, just chalk line consistently in 2017 and, uh, you know, forced to wear wear a pretty aggressive beating at times. I could sign off on that, but you could also then say that he wouldn't have quite the amount of game time, and and that maybe his you know development wherever it would be on that end uh, wouldn't have come along. So, I just think you're talking about two different characters here that are extremely limited, and I don't know that the trajectory of the program is changed at all based off how and when they're used. That's fair. I I don't I'm not convinced they make a bowl game last year if they go with Hockman as opposed to Blackman. I think he was that limited. So maybe that maybe that's well. He certainly doesn't. Yeah, I mean, if your strength is throwing throwing nine routes to Terry, I wouldn't. Hockman's not the quarterback I'm choosing for that. So I, I you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of validity to what you're saying there. By the way, uh, one more question tonight, if you want to take and like, look, yeah, I, I agree with you, and also fully acknowledge that you know Blackman at times really. Overthrew those routes or underthrew them, or you know, just what not on target all the time. At least he had the arm strength to get it there at times. 
This is from this is from Greg. I thought this was kind of interesting. I, I, this this was from our, from our uh, from our messages. What's wrong with the idea of focusing on three star offensive linemen in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, with an eye on developing them in the weight room for their fourth and fifth year? I think that part of the problem is quote over recruiting. We have been playing four star linemen too early, allowing them to get injured and hurting their development. A three star lineman uh, would know that he isn't good enough to start this year or two. Uh, but a four-star could be, quote, too talented and end up playing too early. It may sound counterintuitive, but I think that's part of the problem. Once the O-line is fixed for a couple of years, uh, then we could recruit four and five stars without the same issues because they wouldn't be starting uh, their first year or two. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are that Florida State is actively deploying your strategy <laughs> right now. It also did so in the last class, right? <laughs> I was going to say, I love it. I love it. And it's one that's, uh, that's, that's being chased right now. I mean, it's kind of, it's based off who your coaching staff is and kind of where you are in the college football world. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to go into Georgia and beat Alabama and Georgia for a five-star offense tackle or something like that right now. So, you know, you need both the guys that kind of fit your traditional recruiting, uh, trajectory or, or geographic pattern and guys that you're not going to, you know, lose to the, Bama's, Georgia's, Clemson's of the world. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a very real strategy and one that you're going to uh, both see and continue to see for, you know, at least the next two recruiting cycles. I mean, Robert Scott, Thomas Schrader, Zane Herring, Lloyd Willis were all three stars from those states, mainly. I, I guess Robert Scott was from Arkansas. Yeah, man, like they're they're executing the strategy right now. Uh, and th- this year they have, ro- they have, uh, they have Rod Orr. By the way, uh, FSU just offered a kid tonight. It, it's it's so crazy to me, like how these dudes just develop out of nowhere this year. You know, because we're, we're not able to get out and see anybody on the road for the most part, and nobody's taking visits, and there's no camps and combines. Kid named Ian Matthews uh, up by your way, and uh, well, I guess Columbus is, is pretty far west of you, but Ian Matthews, class 2021, he's kind of like, like a, a D tackle. Tag, tag Odell Higgins in his offer tonight. Uh, St. Anne Pacelli High School. Highlights look uh, look raw, but like very athletic. Kudos to FSU staff for uh, for getting on him. Looks like they're one of his first like major offers. Not not the first. Uh, you know, I, I've been I've been actively looking to see. You know, when are they getting in to to offer some of these guys? Right. Like I, I thought, I I thought they took too long to, to offer Zen Mikulski, the offensive lineman who's committed to Louisville and then decommitted. And you know, so right now he has uh, Arkansas, Georgia Tech, and VTech. Those are all schools you could beat. Yeah, he he doesn't play at one of these major talent factories from Columbus. Paselli's not you know not something that you you hear of a lot. He looks um, exceptionally raw. I mean, he, he looks like a big kind of raw jumbo athlete uh, that you could certainly do some things with, but somebody that's going to take a little bit of time to put some polish on him. But, yeah, that's the type of find uh, that, that Florida State's kind of looking for right now. And, yeah, man, it's crazy. I mean, I, I you know, you see these kids in the Deep South. I was looking at a kid from, like, Vestavia Hills a couple nights ago, doesn't have an Auburn or Alabama offer, and just uh, you kind of know that's the – place that you got to live right now and you got to grab enough of these kids to turn your room and then hopefully be in a place where two to three years you know you can you can start to battle for the four-star tackles and uh you know things like that and be a little bit more competitive across the board that's about all i have for tonight's show i think 
I certainly enjoyed it. Thank you to uh, many of our Patreons who supplied these questions. Patreon.com backslash Nolcast. Uh, as we are ever so fortunate to have so many of us, uh, so many of you guys support our show. Thank you. Thank you to our sponsors. And uh, Bud will be back with a Notre Dame preview here, uh, unless we hear otherwise. But uh, certainly enjoyed it. Thank you to everybody. We'll be back in 24 hours. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Noles. Thank <laughs> you.